Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Checkman. Donald Trump came to power on a wave of distrust. Americans had lost faith in government, its institutions, and in the ability of their government to be honest with them. It's a through line that begins perhaps with the assassination of JFK, runs through the endless lies America endured about the Vietnam War, and continues through the Iraq War. The lies about weapons of mass destruction and politicians saying they were for the war before they were against it. And while Americans often want simple answers, the reality of policy, particularly foreign policy, is far more nuanced and complex. I have said over and over again of late that I wish I could get into the time machine to read 50 years from now what historians will say about this period that we're living through right now. So it's equally important now, almost 20 years after 9-11 and 17 years after the start of the Iraq War, that we can look with some perspective at that piece of the through line of distrust that got us to where we are today. Again, the reality is nuanced, complicated, and shaped by the foibles of human beings. It's the story that award-winning journalist Robert Draper tells in his new book, To Start a War. Robert Draper is a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine and a contributing writer to National Geographic. He's the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Dead Certain, and it is my pleasure to welcome Robert Draper here to talk about To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things that that is just overwhelming about this story is in some ways how similar it is to the best and the brightest taking us to war yet again and getting it all wrong. That's that's so apt. In fact, um, I was reading Halberstam's classic, rereading it, uh, just as I began my research. And uh, I loved his portraits of these individuals who indeed were, you know, truly, truly bright men and uh, who, you know, at first, second and third glance, you'd say is absolutely the cast of characters you would want uh, to prosecute a, a complicated situation like Vietnam. So it was with um, the Bush administration. Look, there's, a, you know, some of your listeners may not be in the same ideological thrall, uh, uh, in, in the same camp as um, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, uh, Dick Cheney, Colin Powell, uh, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, and Condoleezza Rice. But I think it is fair to say that, that um, this was one of the most um, experienced foreign policy teams that anybody had ever assembled, and it really was, in that sense, very reminiscent of JFK's foreign policy team with unfortunately similar consequences. And and the real striking thing about all of this is that we're very quick now, and we're all guilty of this, of looking at some of the foreign policy folks that have been brought in in the current administration and kind of making fun of them and their lack of experience and their lack of knowledge. And yet we look at the best and the brightest in these two cases, and, and it's amazing how wrong they got it. Right. And of course, what you have just laid out so expertly there, Jeff, is what enabled the rise of Donald Trump, who pretty much made his argument, um, both in the primaries and in the general election, on the backs of the notion that expertise failed us. Experience got us nothing except endless wars. And it is really true that, that you know, when you look at experience, it's not a be-all and end-all. And, and by the way, you know, that's, uh, if uh, Joe Biden is having some difficulty closing the deal with some 
uh, voters. I don't think it's because uh, directly due to his vote on the authorization for use of military force. After all, he joined the Senate majority in doing that. But because it is worth asking, like, you know, so what does that experience get you? And in the case of Biden, in the case of a lot of Democrats who voted uh, to give Bush the power to go to war, the question has to be asked, what did you learn from that experience? And, uh, you know, how will you become a more capable leader because of that? Now, I will say that, that the one institution that has undergone a, a, a real self-inspection has been the intelligence community. You know, that they have uh, – uh, they, they still have difficulties with collections and lots of other things. But in terms of, like, uh, the – analytical failures that were so systemic, I think they've learned a great deal from that. But you do have to ask yourself, with all these people who voted for the war, and for that matter, people in the media who helped provide a glide path for the president by not being sufficiently skeptical, um, have they really done their own you know, series of self-inspections? And in that sense, one of the things that, that's part of the story that you tell in To Start a War is the way the administration misled itself, even before it misled the American people, arguably, that it started to believe its own propaganda and its own lies, which built layer upon layer upon layer. Yeah, I think that, that what happened was, in a way, like a retelling of a family fable um, that continues to gain locomotion and credibility, even as it continues to gather hyperbole. You know, no one at any point said, you know, since we are considering going to war with Saddam Hussein, maybe now is the time to sit back and not only ponder all of the you know, second and third order consequences that would be unintended but, but could prove really, really negative, but we also maybe should like, cast a more skeptical eye on what has brought us to this point to begin with, you know, the, the intelligence that supposedly suggests that Saddam has an active weapons program and maybe a weapons stockpile, too. That just didn't happen. And... and um, and, and everybody really is to blame on that, but it's nonetheless the case that uh, the Bush administration, above all, became unhinged from um, from truth-seeking, let's say. I, I've, I know there are a lot of people, including perhaps some of your listeners, who maintain to this day that George W. Bush, as the bumper sticker goes, Bush lied, people died. I really am not persuaded by any case that Bush was actively lying to the American public. In a way, the, um, the more infuriating reality is that Bush believed this stuff. He believed himself when he said Saddam would love nothing more than to hand over his weapons to terrorist organizations who want to do us in and then walk away without a fingerprint. Literally every part of that sentence is a fantastical uh, notion that had no basis in reality, but the president believed it nonetheless. And what they all believed, or at least it became part of it, as you talk about it in the book, is that somehow all of these evildoers in the world were out there to gang up on us. Yeah. Well, part of this you know, goes back to the notion, uh, the time-honored notion of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, okay, you can always posit that. Uh, but if you start with the proposition that these these were themselves true enemies, uh, that, that the Iraqi dictatorship uh, that was secular in nature um, had zero in common um, with uh, al-Qaeda. And in fact, al-Qaeda looked with particular loathing on this secular regime, and Saddam certainly didn't trust al-Qaeda. They had sniffed each other out now and again, as people do. We also talk to our enemies. That doesn't mean they're suddenly our friends. But the notion that, that uh, Saddam would risk everything to go to war 
uh, on the American homeland was unsupported by any intelligence. And, and, uh, and that, I think, in fact, one thing I disclose in the book is that less than two weeks after 9-11, Saddam's uh, right-hand man, his deputy prime minister, Tariq Aziz, uh, sent out a couple of letters uh, that made their way to State Department officials that said, in essence, look, you know, I know my boss has said some ugly things about America, but please put that aside and just consider that as bluster. We want to be allies with yours. We are national, uh, natural allies with you when, in terms of the war on Islam or uh, Islamic extremism. Uh, we ourselves have been targeted by these extremists for assassination attempts. So view us as your friend. You can not totally believe that. You can also just make the judgment that I don't want to have anything to do with a dictator. But that does give you a, a, a snapshot of Iraq's frame of mind then, and it certainly wasn't the frame of mind of, of we want to destroy America. One of the things that was particularly striking and, and I think surprising to some extent is that after Bush's September 20th speech, I guess Tony Blair came to the U.S., Tony Blair saw this coming and yet later became a supporter of the war. Two things about that. I mean, one of them, Jeff, is that um, Blair also um, uh, thought that Saddam was evil and supported regime change, though that term, regime change, does not necessarily mean a military invasion. Uh, invasion. It can mean you know, a containment that basically forces the regime to collapse from within, much as was the case with the Soviet Union. But the other thing, too, was that Blair really believed that the relationship between the, UA, the U.K. and the U.S., um, was unique. He wanted to preserve it. He thought it was important to be in lockstep with it. He thought it was important to be supportive of um, the Bush administration. But he also hoped to guide President Bush in, a, in the way that if it did seem necessary to go to war, that it would be done the right way, which would be prudent following the steps, amassing an international coalition, getting U.N. weapons inspectors in, uh, uh, having a uh, U.N. resolution signed um, by all the appropriate signatories, basically saying you know, that, that if Saddam is once again in material breach of, um, of the, uh, um, the, the need to turn over his weapons and to make a full declaration, then we have the justification to go to war. So, so Blair wanted to go by the book and, and, uh, and to do this in an orderly fashion. But it certainly is true that at no point did Blair say to the president, this is a bad decision. Talk about Paul Wolfowitz, because while there are many players in this story and, and, and lots of different agendas that drove us towards war, Wolfowitz, from literally the very night of 9-11, was the kindling of so much of this. Yeah, I, I, I think appropriately begin and end my book with Wolfowitz because he was, it's been often said, the architect of um, the Iraq invasion, which I don't think is quite accurate. It wasn't drawn up the way he would have done it. But he certainly was the person who put Iraq on the president's agenda at a time after September 11th when it didn't seem to belong there, when it seemed that the only thing that belonged there was to be going after the 9-11 perpetrators, meaning al-Qaeda, and secondarily, the Taliban government in Afghanistan that had supported al-Qaeda by giving them a base. Uh, Iraq had nothing whatsoever to do with the September 11th attacks, and so it seemed a bit bizarre when the evening of 9-11, as you mentioned, and this is disclosed in my book for the first time, um, the Deputy Secretary of Defense sent out a tasking to the Defense Intelligence Agency saying, "Don't." it didn't say give me information on the hijackers, it said give me all the information you've got on Iraq's ties to terror groups. 
And then within a matter of days, he succeeded in getting that argument that Saddam needed to be viewed in the context of 9-11 into the president's decision space where it stayed. To what extent did that begin to get traction? Talk about the ways in which that grew from Wolfowitz's initial action. Sure. Well, in in the very immediate... Four days after 9-11, four days after Wolfowitz tasked the DIA to come up with information on Iraq and its ties to terror, there was a meeting of Bush's National Security Council at Camp David on September the 15th. Wolfowitz was the only deputy who attended that, and Wolfowitz at the table had the audacity as they were talking about uh, invasion plans for Afghanistan and how to go after al-Qaeda, had the audacity to say, actually, we should be going after Saddam. We should be going after Iraq. And got into this crazy argument with the CIA's counterterrorism chief, Kofor Black, about this. And Bush sort of waved it off and said, okay, we'll deal with Iraq later. Um, And yet later that afternoon, Wolfowitz got into a conversation with the president and said some intriguing things or things that the president found intriguing about ways they could invade Iraq. And after that, the next day, Bush said to Wolfowitz's boss, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, hey, come up with some creative ideas for um, for dealing with Saddam's regime. Come up with a military option. And that that got the ball rolling, and it really never stopped. And I think it surprised a lot of people at the beginning in the State Department. Secretary Colin Powell just thought this was such a cockamamie notion that it would die of its own volition, and I think it was a matter of real chagrin to him as well as to people in the CIA and people in the Joint Chiefs of Staff when by the summer of 2002 it was clear that that was the winning argument. Why was Bush so willing to listen to that argument at that point? Well, he had a history, after all, with Saddam. Um, his um, uh, Saddam had attempted to assassinate his father in 1993, and uh, Bush had never forgotten that. I want to be clear that I do not think that that was the sole motivator in Bush going to war and sending combat troops into a foreign country, where many of them would likely die. Uh, but um, but it constituted muscle memory for Bush, who was a two-term Texas governor and didn't know much about the rest of the world. He knew about Mexico, and then he knew about this evildoer named Saddam, and he didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the pre-9-11 warnings about al-Qaeda. Suddenly he woke up and realized, you know, that he'd better pay attention to the world, and in particular, those parts and people in the world who constituted a threat to uh, to America since he and others were pretty certain that a second wave was going to be coming. And so he, it, it didn't take a whole lot to get Bush interested in Saddam. And then, of course, the day after 9-11, Saddam stood alone among world leaders in not condemning the attacks, but rather saying, in essence, America, you had it coming to you. So that was really rubbing salt in the wound and a reminder to the president, this guy is a bad guy and um, it would behoove us to take him out. It was when then all of the discussions about Saddam's ties to terror groups and Saddam having an active weapons program began to take hold that the president thought, you know, it's the justification is clear that this should be the next frontier in the war on terror. Why wasn't there any counter-argument other than Connie Rice, and why was she so weak in her arguments? Well, Connie Rice actually wasn't, you know, um, uh, really uh, mounting a counter-argument. I think that that she, like Tony Blair, wanted to see the president stay to a deliberative path and uh, not to do anything hasty. But, um, no, the, the reality was that everybody... Uh, in his war council 
was pretty sympathetic to the notion that Saddam must go, except for Colin Powell, and to a, a lesser extent, um, Condi Rice. But by the summer of 2002, virtually all of them believed that the president's mind was made up, and they believed, therefore, that their job was to facilitate uh, the president's um, decision, uh, which in fact had not been made up by then, so that uh, so that you know it would be a successful decision that would be successfully carried out. And the paradox of this was that even throughout that period, the president was saying, "My mind's not made up." I think he was very much leaning in towards invading Iraq and needed would have needed to be persuaded hard otherwise. But no one tested uh, his insistence that, uh, um, that, that his mind was still open by then saying, okay, well, Mr. President, let me come to you then with some reasons why we probably shouldn't go on. And so because that argument was never launched and because all that was built around him was a kind of wartime invasion apparatus, that ultimately he felt like his hand was forced, that it was the only decision that um, was out there for him. And that last aspect was particularly striking, that this wartime apparatus had been completely built around him so that when he had to make a final decision, there was a certain, it seemed like there was a certain safety about it, that he was enclosed in this womb of, of wartime apparatus that somehow made it feel safe. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. It's, it's uh, Well, so part of it was that um, Condi's deputy, uh, Steve Hadley, the deputy national security advisor, could tell very early in 2002 that, look, wow, there's a lot of discussion about going to war. Um, we'd better coordinate in case war does happen. We'd better start all talking about things like could there be a humanitarian disaster, um, what would a post-Saddam government look like? Uh, how do we make sure that the oil fields don't get set aflame or, or in some other way tamper with and rupture the global economy? And, and the CIA, in the meantime, by the summer of 2002, George Tenet also believed the war was inevitable, that the president had pretty much made up his mind and started planning his own, uh, you know, uh, having his um, case officers talk to their liaisons overseas. And Rumsfeld had, by that point in time, already, with Tommy Franks, drafted a war plan. So everything around him was pro-war when each of those could have had a counter, could have had a, instead of an invasion plan, let's have a neat diplomatic plan. Instead of an interagency um, discussion about what would post-Saddam Iraq look like, why don't we have one on um, uh, the um, debating the advisability of go, going to war? None of that occurred, and, and ultimately that's the president's responsibility, right? I mean, it's... Um, uh, it, it's, uh, it was really incumbent upon the president to consider all eventualities and to ask his national security advisor, for example, hey, bring in a dissenting opinion. As it turned out, as far as I, my research could tell, the only American who had an argument with the president about whether or not to go to war were his 20-year-old twin daughters. Uh, other than that, no one else did. And Dick Cheney was a true believer. I mean, one of the things that, that seems to come across in To Start a War— is Cheney's sincerity in being a true believer in this? Yeah, yeah. No, I, so Cheney was, I think, in a lot of ways, intellectually honest until a point in time when he wasn't. And I'll explain. <laughs> I mean, Cheney, for one thing, thought Saddam was a bad character. He had been Secretary of Defense during the first Gulf War. He thought it was appropriate 
um, uh, that President George Herbert Walker Bush had um, pulled back the troops and, um, uh, because the coalition mission then was to chase Saddam out of Kuwait, not to overthrow him altogether. Uh, Cheney had hoped that the Iraqis would do the jobs themselves. They didn't. He came into the younger Bush administration still thinking Saddam was a bad guy, having second thoughts about um, father Bush's decision, but also respectful of the fact that the new Bush administration was going to be domestically oriented, that um, it was going to focus on tax cuts and energy reform and education reform. Those were the priorities. And so he kept his counsel until after 9-11. From 9-11, I think that, that Cheney concluded a couple of things. First, that um, that was a horrific attack, but it could have been worse um, if biological and chemical weapons were used. And so we had to make sure that anyone who had them uh, would be disarmed. Uh, and secondly, that Cheney was of the view that, that you know, maybe what's happened here is that um, adversaries of America know they can get away with this stuff and will never respond. We didn't really respond after USS Cole in 2000, after the embassy bombings in, in, uh, in Africa in 1998. And if we don't really project force here, then, um, uh, then this, we're, we're doomed to have this happen again and again. Where Cheney went off the rails in terms of honesty was in August of 2002, claiming simply stated there can be no doubt that Saddam possesses weapons. There was plenty of doubt, and Saddam, as it turned out, did not possess weapons. Coming back to where we started and talking about the experience of these people and, and kind of the best and the brightest framework, why was the post-war planning so poor? Well, two or three reasons, all converging at once. Um, one was that Donald Rumsfeld uh, um, insisted on a light military footprint because he distrusted the Pentagon bureaucrats. He believed he, there was a smarter, lighter, more modern way to get in and get out using technology. So there was very, very little of, of um, um, uh, an ability on the part of the military to uh, to maintain stability. They were stretched beyond capacity. Uh, related to that, Rumsfeld was of the belief that this wasn't the military's job anyway, that, that as they would say, we don't do windows. It, Rumsfeld would often talk about we need to take our hands off of the, the bicycle so that the Iraqis will learn how to, um, uh, to ride themselves. And the final factor, though, that was just as important as those was the belief embraced by President Bush, by Wolfowitz and others, that the Iraqis so yearned for freedom that they would coalesce around the opportunity for democracy and along the way forget any and all sectarian tensions. This, of course, was a, a kind of absurd on its face, but it was honestly believed by President Bush, who had long stated that, that um, what people want more than anything else is freedom, and that it followed logically then that if given the opportunity for freedom, nothing would stand in their way. In fact, um, uh, none of that came to pass, and Iraq, all the way to this day, is still an unstable country. How much of it came from being misguided by people like Chalabi? Well, it, that didn't help, but I really think that Chalabi was just confirming the biases. We're talking about Ahmed Chalabi, the head of the Iraqi National Congress, who was um, who had not seen his his mother country, Iraq, in over 40 years, um, and yet seemed to believe that he would be the ideal person to lead post-Saddam Iraq. Uh, again, a kind of absurd notion, but, but a lot of uh, people in the Bush administration bought into it, particularly after Hamid Karzai was installed as the new leader of Afghanistan. He'd spent most of his time in the West, too, and, and had no constituency in Afghanistan. And for a brief moment in time, I emphasize brief, 
it appeared that Karzai uh, was an inspired choice. So Chalabi was, you know, there was that, and Chalabi was telling people what they wanted to hear by saying, look, you know, this, um, this can be done cheaply. Uh, the Iraqis are, you know, have a talented bureaucracy. Uh, we'll be able to stand up a decent government in no time. And that appealed to the people like Rumsfeld and Wolf and for that matter, the president, uh, who didn't like Chalabi but liked the message, which was the Americans can get in and get out, and uh, democracy will flower across the Middle East uh, as a result of this triumphant invasion. Was there a single tipping point that you found where maybe Bush could have been talked out of this? Sure. I mean, I think that that tipping point in particular occurred in the period of December and January when it was becoming clear to key people that the intelligence case was flawed. And uh, Condoleezza Rice was aware of that by the end of December uh, and uh, and said so to the to CIA officials. She said, you're, you're putting the president way out on a limb here with these ballpark estimates. Uh, for that matter, a couple of weeks later, uh, uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell was asked point blank by the president, are you with me? And in fact, in his heart of hearts, Powell was not. He thought it was a mistake to go to war. But he figured that Bush's mind was made up. And so rather than um, one more time say, no, I think this is a bad idea, and, and I feel duty-bound to resign as a result, which, by the way, would have led to a domino effect of resignations in the State Department, in um, the Foreign Ministry, in the U.K., and completely changed the whole narrative, uh, then that, too, could have made a difference. So I think that that window of December and January was when it was not too late, but the locomotion had become so great, the inevitability of war seemed so inescapable to people like Powell and Rice and others that no one stood up. There's a moment early on where even Bush acknowledges that there was a kind of bloodlust going on in the country, and and he felt the need initially, it seemed, to resist it, although he ultimately didn't. Yeah, so you're referring to the day, nine days after 9-11, on September the 20th, when he gave the greatest speech of his presidency before the joint session of Congress. That day, two things happened. Um, one was that he invited some religious leaders into the Oval Office, and uh, they were going to pray with him to, to give him strength before he gave his speech. And in the course of it, Bush said something rather remarkable. He said, I am having trouble controlling my bloodlust. Later that evening, he said pretty much the same thing to Prime Minister Tony Blair and his British cadre. He said, you know, you have to understand where I'm coming from. Blair at this point was basically saying, you know, one war at a time, don't do Iraq right now. And, and Bush was saying, you have to understand where I'm coming from. People in middle America don't know anything about terrorists, and now this attack has occurred. For the first time, our homeland feels vulnerable, and they are upset and fearful, but they are angry. They want somebody to answer for this. They want somebody killed day before yesterday. So that was the climate that in a lot of ways Bush himself um, was made manifest in Bush. And, you know, on a certain level, you can say, well, Bush did control his bloodlust. Eighteen months passed between that moment and the invasion of Iraq. At the same time, you have a sense of a president whose blood is at a simmer throughout all of this and, and, uh, and who is leaning into war even when the evidence is there to suggest that he not do so. And finally, is there a singular lesson to take away from all of this? I do think so. I think that, that um, decency matters, and we see Trump, uh, Bush's approval rating um, is much higher than Trump's because people see his, uh, you know, they, they see the kind of integrity and decency that's manifest in the Bushes. But truth matters, too. 
And the pursuit of truth is, is something that has gone completely off the rails uh, in the current administration, but it really has its antecedent in the Bush administration where there was no honest search for the truth. Instead, there was a belief that they knew as much of the truth as they needed to know, and that's what they were going to try to package and sell to the American public, when in fact it was at best a gross disfiguring of the truth and at worst the complete opposite of the truth. Robert Draper, his book is To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Really a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Thank you.